Well, hey, everybody, it is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Uh, now, now, before we get going uh, with our content for today, I need to make a brief housekeeping note. Because a couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, um, at the start of the talk, I made the comment that if I looked a bit different, maybe you remember this, it was because my wife had changed out the shampoo and conditioner in our shower with a new, new ones from a brand called Big Sexy Hair right? And most of you just laughed like you just did, but one of you took it upon yourselves to imagine, along with the help of Photoshop, what I might look like with big, sexy hair. And it was too good not to share, so here you go. Check it out. Ooh. I, I just love that there were color options, yeah? Uh, I showed this to my boys, and, uh, and one of them said to me, well, you look a little bit like Vanilla Ice in his prime. Uh, which I don't know if that's good for me or bad for Vanilla Ice or both. But anyway, today we get to begin a brand new series called Why Follow. And it's all about why I am absolutely convinced that everybody should follow Jesus. And they should follow him in spite of the questions that they may carry about some of the things that they read in the Bible. And they should follow him in spite of the fact that followers of Jesus can at times be judgmental and hypocritical and politically polarizing. And they should follow him in spite of the fact that there are really great questions. Like, why would a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people? Uh, but, but these questions don't really have great answers in this life. Like, in spite of all that, I firmly believe that everyone should follow Jesus. And over the next seven weeks, I'm going to explain to you why. Okay, so now to get us going for today, I want to ask a question that some of you may find a bit uncomfortable and others of you may find incredibly helpful and you like lean in. So here's the question. What are we supposed to do with all of the weird stories that we find in the Bible, right? And, and if you read the Bible, and not everybody does, but if you read the Bible, uh, especially if you're one of these people that just opens it up and like, we'll see where it goes, boom, and you start reading and you're like, wow. I don't know what to do with that story. Like, what are we supposed to do with those stories? Now, in other words, like as modern, rational people, are we really expected to follow Jesus based on a collection of ancient manuscripts written by people over the course of hundreds of years in a world that didn't really understand modern science and in which pretty much everybody believed in the gods? I mean, isn't it possible that they, these ancient people were just trying to make sense of their lives through a supernatural lens? And given that potential, is it really all that surprising that so many people in our world have sort of gone through a process of deconstructing their childhood faith based on some of the things that they read in the Bible as adults? I mean, let's be honest. In a room like this, it's entirely possible that a few of us are in the midst of that deconstruction process right now. And like, you can't believe that I'm talking about this in church like maybe you haven't officially walked out the door yet, but, but you're definitely thinking about it. And the only reason you haven't left yet is how your family and your friends, and especially your mama, let's be honest, right, would respond if you went public with your doubts and your questions about the Bible. And honestly, if, if we have to find satisfactory answers to all of our questions about the strange things we read in the Bible before we follow Jesus, then then if you think about it, the Christian faith sort of balances dangerously on the edge of ancient declarations of superstitious people. And we really shouldn't be surprised that so many people in our world are walking away from their faith. Well, 
I wanted to start there today because I'm absolutely convinced that Christians don't have to come to peace with all the strange parts of the Bible before deciding to follow Jesus. And, and that's a really good thing, because honestly, I'm not sure that everyone can come to peace with their questions. And consequently, finding answers to all of our questions isn't a reasonable foundation on which to build a faith in Jesus. And, and that's okay, because as it turns out, and this may surprise you, but as it turns out, that's not the foundation that Jesus had in mind for his followers. He desires that we build our faith on something that's way more, and I put a list of adjectives right, substantial, sustainable, and investigable. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you're thinking. Investigable does not sound right, does it? I was in the mirror this morning going, investigable, 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 right. We want to say what? Investigatable, and which is what I wrote in my notes, and then Microsoft Word um, put the little squiggly line under it. You know what that is? And, and you're like, some of you are like, no, I've never seen that. I'm perfect in every way. Well, fine. The rest of us, the squiggly line, you right-click, and it tells you what it should be, and I saw it wasn't investigatable, was not an option, so I went to dictionary.com because they have these things, and I type it in, and sure enough, investigatable is not a word. So you picked up something in church you didn't know. But anyway, if you or someone you love is in the process of deconstructing their faith, the good news is that the Christian faith is investigable. <clears throat> I did it. You, you don't just have to sort of take it on faith. And that's a really good thing because, well, it's a really good thing even if you're someone who is comfortable just to take it on faith. Because if you're someone who's comfortable to take it on faith, it's very likely that you have people in your life that you love, like your kids or your grandkids, who can't just take it on faith and set aside their questions. So what can we do if we find ourselves in a conversation with someone who is deconstructing their faith based on questions about some of the things that they've read in the Bible? Like, where do we start? And I'm a pastor, so I do have these conversations with people fairly often. And whenever I find myself in one of these conversations, always at Starbucks, because that is what Jesus would want, I always begin by asking a really important question. And it goes like this. Is it possible that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are reliable accounts of actual events? So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four accounts of Jesus' life. They're the first four books that we find in the New Testament of our Bible. And so is it possible that these four individuals record reliable accounts of actual events? Can we trust that the authors of those first four books of the New Testament recorded things that actually happened? Because if they did, then what they say about Jesus is true. And in spite of all of our unanswered questions about the strange things we find in the Bible, Jesus is worth following. Okay, so I know what some of you are thinking at this point, because I run these scenarios in my mind all week, but you're saying, like, well, how could you ever know if what these four guys wrote could be trusted? Like, how would we determine that? And, and as it turns out, you can determine that. Um, it's possible if we consider how those first accounts of Jesus' life came to be. And to help us with that, I made one of my famous highly sophisticated drawings. Brace yourself. It is breathtaking. Behold its majesties. Ha <laughs> ha. Yes. It's kind of like a whiteboard because it is. All right. 
So as you can see, uh, this is sort of the history of the Bible. Uh, the history of the Bible begins with a single event, the resurrection of Jesus. That happened around 33 AD. And the resurrection of Jesus sparked a movement that was eventually called the church. And then decades later, a few of those first followers of Jesus, some of whom had been eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus and had been some of his first followers, documented their experience with Jesus in writing. Uh, that's where the New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus come from, right? We call them the Gospels. So on here you see, um, you know, a few decades after, some between 33 and 100 AD, the Gospels are written. And then you fast forward a few hundred years, uh, because a few hundred years after the Gospels were written, the first Bible was assembled. And now here's why I say all that, and this is absolutely critical for us to understand. The resurrection of Jesus is the only reason why there is a Bible. Now, I know some of you are technical and you're like, yeah, but there was the Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. That is true. That still would be here. But the resurrection of Jesus is the only reason that you or I have ever held a Bible in our hands. No resurrected Jesus, no Bible. No resurrected Jesus, no church. It's that big a deal. Uh, but, but, and this is what I want to argue the rest of our time today. Because there was a resurrection in Jesus, of Jesus. We have accounts of his life that are trustworthy. And to show you why I believe that to be the case, I want to explore with you how a man by the name of Luke begins his account of the life of Jesus. Now, Luke uh, was an, a first century physician and a Jesus follower. He was not one of the first followers of Jesus, but he did have conversations with the first followers of Jesus and Jesus half-brother James. And I absolutely love Luke's account because I love his approach. Uh, he does it the right way. He does what I would do. <laughs> Thanks. Right. Yeah. So check out how Luke begins his gospel. He writes, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And notice that Luke doesn't begin this account once upon a time or long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? Like right from the top, he wants his readers to know that this isn't something he made up. This isn't a story that he fabricated. In fact, he writes that it's something that many people have endeavored to document because of the incredible significance of what had happened. And, and that's pretty amazing if you stop to think about it. I mean, do you know how many people are likely to undertake to draw up an account of your life or my life after we pass? <laughs> I think I have a pretty good idea. Check this out. Not many. <laughs> that, right? Yeah. In fact, it's a little bit depressing to think about it. I was talking to Sarah about that this week, but a little depressing to think about, but almost nobody will even remember that we existed after our grandkids die. That's just the way it goes. Unless, of course, we do something exceptionally great or exceptionally horrible. <laughs> Please don't, right? <laughs> something to talk about over lunch. Anyway, here's something that's worth considering. There were not many people who undertook to draw up accounts of the lives of even the most famous people in the first century. I mean, just a couple examples. Uh, consider a man named Tiberius. So uh, he was the Roman emperor during the life of Jesus. Or maybe, or maybe another guy that you've heard of, uh, Pontius Pilate, right? He was the Roman governor in Israel when Jesus was crucified. And, and there's almost nothing written about Pontius Pilate that has survived 
outside of the accounts of Jesus' life. And there's like absolutely no detailed narrative accounts of the lives of any ancient class working people or crucified criminals or first century rabbis. I mean, we have some quotes and we have some, some like legendary stories that have been passed on about a few of the rabbis, but, but nothing even close to what we find in Luke's account of the life of Jesus. And that honestly should cause us to ask a question like, why would Luke bother to preserve not just an account, but such a detailed account of a Galilean day laborer turned rabbi who was rejected by many of his own people and crucified by the Roman Empire? I mean, why did Luke and the authors of the other New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus, as well as many others, which is what Luke tells us, why did they find his story so worth telling? And honestly, the answer is simple. We've already discussed it. It's the title of the talk today. Something happened. And, And that something that had happened had profound implications for future generations of people all over the world. And so many somebodies had to tell the world. Okay, back to Luke. Here's what he writes. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay, so notice that Luke uses the pronoun us, like handed down to us and not handed down to them. In other words, these events happened in Luke's lifetime. And from the perspective of ancient literature, that's another thing that's absolutely stunning. I mean, if you go and research ancient history, what you're going to find is much of ancient history was written by people who lived long after the events that they described had taken place. But see, that's not the case with the accounts of the life of Jesus. Luke records that he was actually able to interview eyewitnesses to the events that he describes. And then then he goes on and he says, with this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too, like along with the many, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So what we read when we pick up the the book we call Luke in the Bible is a letter between Luke, who did this investigation. He was investigable, right? Investigating, I don't know. Anyway, right? And he's writing it to his friend, Theophilus. And, and, and he says, you know, carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And this is why Luke is the one that gives us all the details about Jesus' birth. He wants to start at the beginning and he wants to give an orderly account of what had happened during Jesus' life. I'm telling you, this is a big deal, especially if you're in a season when you've started to deconstruct your faith or you feel like the faith that you picked up as a child was starting to sort of unravel on you because of some of the things that you read in the Bible. I mean, when Luke wrote these words, he had no idea that there would ever be uh, the Bible. Think about that. He could never have imagined that his account would survive the first century, let alone make it to our century. Honestly, he wouldn't have a a strong sense that anyone would read it other than the one dude for whom he had written it, his friend Theophilus. But see, the account we call Luke was included in the Bible when the Bible was assembled 
because of who wrote it and when it was written. It was considered to be reliable and it was considered to be trustworthy. And, and, and practically, and this is something to think about too, this means that we shouldn't take Luke's account seriously just because it's in the Bible. I mean, as I showed you in that riveting drawing that I made on my whiteboard, right? Um, it was written hundreds of years before there was a Bible as we know it, before the Bible was assembled for the first time. But see, Luke's account of the life of Jesus was included in the Bible because Luke's account was considered reliable when it was written. Okay, just in case I lost you there, I, I want to use an illustration that I heard from another pastor that I thought was super helpful. So um, this is what I'm trying to say. So think about this. Have you ever stayed in a fancy hotel and used the in-room safe? I brought a picture. Remember these? Some of you have like, I've never used one. Others of you like, every time I do it, I don't trust anybody. I'm using the safe, right? So you're at a nice hotel and you use the in-room safe. Or maybe you're like me and you're at like a sketchy hotel that made you feel like you had to use the in-room safe. You ever been there? Yeah. Like you're like, uh, I think I want my stuff to be here when I get back from dinner. So slide it into the safe. Okay. So think about this. When you put your jewelry or your laptop into that safe, you are doing so because you already believe your jewelry and your laptop are valuable. Putting the jewelry and the laptop in does not make them valuable. Or the question, right, do you put things in the safe to make them valuable or did you put them in the safe because they were valuable? Right, you, you, you put something, putting something in a safe doesn't make it valuable. The fact you put it in a safe is evidence that you consider it to be valuable. So in the same way, Luke's account of the life of Jesus was considered valuable when it was written. And so, you know, hundreds of years later, when it was placed into the collection of books we call the Bible, it was already considered to be reliable and valuable and trustworthy. All that to say, if you find yourself struggling with your faith due to questions about something that you read in the Bible, I would encourage you to reground yourself in the fact that in the first century, when the eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus were still around, a man named Luke carefully investigated Jesus' life from the beginning. And if he did, and there's no reason to believe that he didn't, then we really should pay attention. Because Luke records that something happened that was and is good news for the whole world. Okay, now check out what Luke identifies as the goal for his careful investigation of Jesus to his friend Theophilus. He writes that he prepares this orderly account so that, he says, you Theophilus may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In other words, Theophilus, I want you to be secure in the, your knowledge of the things that you have been taught about Jesus. And here's the thing, Theophilus already believed in Jesus, but Luke wanted to provide him with the context and the clarity for that belief. Most of all, he wanted him, and honestly, anyone else who happened upon his account, to anchor their faith in Jesus to a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus. And as the first century unfolded, that's exactly what happened. Luke's account of the life of Jesus was meticulously copied and distributed because it was seen as so valuable. It was distributed to followers of Jesus all over the Roman world. 
And during times of persecution, some people actually memorized Luke's account entirely so that it wouldn't be lost. There was even a time near the beginning of the 4th century when there was a Roman emperor named Diocletian. If you ever heard of this guy, bad guy, okay? And he launched an empire-wide persecution of Christians. And he came to suspect that he would never get rid of the Christians until he got rid of their literature. Like pagan, ancient pagan religions didn't really have literature. You, you know, you kind of just went to the temple, offered your sacrifice and hoped for the best. But these Christians, they had, they had these documents. And so Diocletian says, man, we got to get rid of the documents. And so as part of that uh, campaign against the Christians, copies of Christian literature were collected and burned, including the Gospel of Luke. But fortunately for us, a few brave Jesus followers risked their lives, not simply to protect what they believed, but to protect Luke's account of the life of Jesus, because to them it was valuable, to them it was trustworthy, to them it was precious because they were convinced that the world had to know what had happened. Following Diocletian's retirement, a man you've probably heard of named Constantine, or Constantine the Great, he was not known for his humility, as it turns out, right? But Constantine uh, came to the throne in Rome, and he lifted the persecution of Christians, and he stopped the burning of their literature. And then eventually the documents that make up our New Testament were brought out of hiding. And in a truly stunning turn of events, the same Roman Empire that had sought to destroy Christianity for hundreds of years, the same empire who had crucified Jesus, financed the assembly, duplication, and distribution of the first Bible. And you say, well, how many copies did they make? You ready? 50. And a few of us are thinking, dude, I have 50 copies of the Bible in my house, right? I got my elementary school Bible, I got my middle school Bible, high school Bible, name on it, right? Haven't read that one very much, right? Got study Bibles, I got Bibles, 50 Bibles. Like in the whole world, there were 50 Bibles. Yes, because Constantine wanted everyone to be working from the same document. But again, the documents that were included were included because they were already considered trustworthy and had been considered trustworthy since the time they were written. I guess what I'm trying to say is that if the four New Testament accounts of the life of Jesus reflect the reality of his life and his teaching, then we have a very good reason to follow Jesus. Everyone has a very good reason to follow Jesus because all four of the accounts of the life of Jesus in the New Testament record that after he taught and after he healed and after he was crucified, his body was placed in a tomb and then three days later, he rose from the dead. Something happened. And honestly, that something is why almost 2,000 years later and halfway around the world, we are gathered here today. And that's why if you or someone you love find, find yourself in a season of disillusionment or deconstruction of your faith, then you really need to pay attention to what Luke has to say about Jesus over the next few weeks, because that's actually where this series is headed. Okay, so now before I let you go, um, I want to leave you with something to think about, and, and it, it goes like this. If you choose to follow, not to follow Jesus because it's inconvenient, I totally get that. 
I mean, I've been a follower of Jesus since I was a, a teenager, and there are moments that it really is inconvenient. I mean, following Jesus will require something of you, and following Jesus will require something from you. You'll be asked to forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven, and you're not going to want to. <laughs> and you're going to be asked to be less selfish, and you're not going to want to change. And, then, and there'll be times when it's incredibly inconvenient to follow Jesus. And moreover, um, at times, following Jesus is going to cost you some of your time, and following Jesus is going to cost you some of your money. It really will. Matter of fact, some of you, um, when Holly came on the screen with the, the, we need help in our, our amazing children's ministry, and she invited you to consider being a part of this incredible team, and they are incredible, and she is a party waiting to happen at all times, I'm telling you, right? But so, there are a few of you that may have like, felt this little like, yeah, I should check that out. And, but then you're, the other thing goes, it's like you got the two little people on your shoulders, right? The white guy and the red guy, and the white guy's like, you should totally check that out. And the red guy's like, yeah, but that's going to cost you some time. And it is, 100%. But here's the weird thing. Listen to the white guy. I'm just saying, right? The, it's like maybe that was God tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, this could be the next step for you. And again, so sometimes following Jesus costs us time and sometimes following Jesus costs us money and, and it's been that way since the beginning. And so it makes sense. Like if you say, okay, I'm not going to follow Jesus because it's too costly, it's too inconvenient. That's somewhat of a fair reason to disengage from your faith. But here's what's, here's what's so interesting. I've not really come upon anybody who's left the faith that that was the reason. The reasons they leave have nothing to do with Jesus, right? Um, but I have met a few people who have disengaged from their faith because of something that they read in their Bible. And, and to those people, I, mean, I, I say the same thing every time, the only issue you need to really wrestle to the ground is whether or not you believe the accounts of Jesus' life are trustworthy. There's a whole bunch of other stuff in the Bible, and it's fascinating, and if I had enough time, we could talk about all that, but we, you're not going to listen that long. So just focus, start here. Are those accounts of Jesus' life trustworthy? Because if they are, then what they record really happened. And if what they record really happened, then early one Sunday morning, around 2,000 years ago, everything about the human experience changed. When Jesus rose from the dead, and because he rose, there's a New Testament, and because he rose, there's a church, and because he rose, we can have hope for a life after this life. But I think there's something else, too, because, because he rose, everything else he did and said was validated. And I would argue we have the most compelling reason of all to accept his invitation to follow. So if he said to me, why follow? Reason number one, I think the, the best reason of all, the reason that's anchored in history, why follow? Something happened that changed everything. And we'll pick it up there next week. I'd love to invite you to stand. If you're here in the room, I'll close our time in prayer. Uh, and once again this week, if, you, if you're joining us for the first time, or maybe you've been here for a while, but you came in today and you're like, interesting history lesson. I think the, the brown hair, whatever you wanted to vote on the hair thing, but you, you were like, that was funny, but, but like, I just need to talk to somebody. And we get that. And so actually, um, right under this screen, after I pray, there'll be a few volunteers that would love to meet you and to hear your story and to, and to pray with you. And so if we can do that for you today, please take advantage of that. But for the rest of us, let me close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we celebrate you because you are good. 
And we celebrate you because 2,000 years ago you sent your son as light in darkness to do what only he could do. To pay for our sins and then on that first Easter Sunday to defeat death itself and to offer us a living hope right here in the middle of this life. And so I pray for, for people, friends in the room, friends joining us online, and if they're honest, they're deconstructing their childhood faith right now. It's coming apart at the seams. And I pray you give them the courage to lean in and listen in for the next few weeks. Because if Jesus rose, everything changed. And if Jesus rose, that reality has the power to reframe all of our questions and all of our doubts. It doesn't get rid of all the questions and doubts, but it reframes them in a powerful way. Because you moved in real space, in real time, and changed everything. And so we thank you. And we bless you. We celebrate you and we love you. In the matchless name of your Son, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Grace and peace to your friends. The good news is there is lunch and bouncy houses today. So go get them. <laughs>